Open in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 26. This is our final chapter in the Summers in the Psalms series for this year. This isn't our final summer in the Psalms. but uh, So hopefully now your, your Bible opens to that spot. If you left church today and walked out into the parking lot only to be arrested by a police officer waiting at your car, you'd immediately want to know what. What for? What did I do? And you'd probably be quick to defend yourself, to quick to plead innocent. You may be tempted to slink down in the back of the squad car as he pulled out of the parking lot, as everyone poured out into the parking lot and watched. And later, as you found yourself standing before a judge, you would likely already have a clearly formed opinion of your own guilt or innocence. When asked how do you plead, your response would be to present the evidence that demonstrates, I'm innocent, I didn't do this, I'm being falsely accused. In Psalm 26, we find David, the king of God's people, going before a judge. He isn't in a court of law, as we would think about it, and we don't even know what the charges are. But we see David asking for a judgment to be made by the most high, perfectly just judge. See, it's in the very nature of Yahweh to be that kind of judge. We see in Psalm 97, verse 2, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And in Psalm 139, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And in Psalm 7, verse 8, The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. That's the just judge that David is asking to make a decision about him. Follow along as I read Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, for I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. In verse 1, we see David asking God to vindicate him. And yet, we can't pass over this without understanding that there, there's, there's emotion to this. 
that the fact that David is asking for vindication or, 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 or judgment here, there is a, we see that David is expecting that verdict to be that he is innocent. And when we approach the Psalms, we're approaching Hebrew poetry. And while poetry communicates information, it often also communicates emotion. And we're not reading David here saying casually to Yahweh, hey, make a decision and get back to me. It's clear by the rest of the psalm that David is declaring his innocence and he's pleading with the Lord to make that decision. What happens next is David will begin to lay out his case in verses 1 to 3, which we're going to consider as our first point this morning, the confidence of the righteous. Following his plea for vindication, David explains his rationale. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. The psalmist stands in confidence because of the integrity that results from the object of his trust. The word integrity here may be hard for us to understand in our Western minds. If I told you that I have a friend and he's a person of integrity, you might think he's, he's honest. He keeps his word. He, the value of his handshake. He does what he says he will do. Yet I think perhaps maybe when we talk about structural integrity of a building or of a, of a bridge, we might get closer to the idea that's before us here. Used here, integrity communicates being complete, indivisible, blameless. Now, if a friend sat down from you across from a cup of coffee and said, I'm blameless, you might be a bit surprised. And if you know anything about David's story here, you might have the same reaction. Or maybe that Paul uses the same language in several places in the New Testament referring to his conduct. Same Paul that persecuted the church. But before we write off David as arrogant or failing to see the gravity of his sin, we need to understand that what David is saying here isn't that he's sinless or perfect. And as several commentators put it, this refers to the overall tenor, the overall trajectory of David's life. And that is that David's life is a result of his trust in who God is. And David says that that trust is unwavering. That literally means that I have not slipped because of who God is. Last week, we looked at Psalm 25 under the theme of waiting on the Lord, as Julia alluded to this morning. Flip back for a minute to Psalm 25 and, and look at verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. This is exactly what the psalmist, what the people of God are to do while they wait to walk in their integrity and trust in God without wavering. In verse 2, we see David's even greater openness to examination. Using three different verbs for testing, the psalmist invites God, who according to Psalm 7-9 can test the minds and the hearts to do that to him. See, we may be able to fool people with our behavior, with our words, the things that you can see, but there is no camouflaging your thoughts. Only Yahweh can truly inspect them. David is laying bare everything to be thoroughly tested and evaluated. These words for testing have a lot of parallels to metallurgy, for testing for reliability, to finding impurities. 
This isn't a quick once over. This is a intensive track that inspects everything. What does the thought of laying bare your thoughts and feelings do to you? Do you have any anxiety over that? Or what if I ask to look at your phone? Just give me 10 minutes. You can come back and pick it up. How would you know feeling that someone was looking at your text messages, your browser history, or even that screen that shows how much time you've spent in each app per day? Now, that may not resonate with all of you. There's one flip phone user probably in here who's really confused right now. But for some of you, you're uncomfortable. And what David is inviting God to do here doesn't even begin to compare what's on your phone. It's what's in your mind and in your heart. And yet, David is confidently asking God to do it and to find him innocent. We don't know the circumstances about why David is so set on vindication. Some scholars think he was being unjustly accused of something and only Yahweh could clear his name. Others believe that this psalm, essential theme of approaching the dwelling place of God, that the psalmist was asking to be declared righteous in order to worship. I think this psalm applies to both of those situations. Spend some time later today in Psalm 27 and Psalm 28, and you're going to see that theme of approaching God in worship kind of pulled through God's dwelling place. Yet as we step back and look at the context of the Psalms as a whole, and then the Old Testament, and then all of Scripture, we see God as just, completely worthy of judging the righteous from the unrighteous, separating the wheat from the chaff. And if we think for a moment in Psalm 26 that David is claiming that he has lived a perfect and sinless life, that his confidence in inviting God's judgment upon himself is because of his conduct, we've missed what's being said here. For in Psalm after Psalm, we see David acknowledging his sin and repenting. But it becomes clear as we look at verse 3 and at the rest of the psalm that David isn't trusting in himself. Verse 3 says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. It's what God did, not what David did. The words here for steadfast love and faithfulness are covenant words. They point us to God's unfailing covenant. This is the same confidence we see from David in Psalm 18, verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows his steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. In fact, David often speaks of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. We saw it just last week in Psalm 25, in verses 6 to 10. If you look over there. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. Friends, David's confidence is not rooted in moralism. It's not rooted in his behavior or the good that he has accomplished. He is confident in the one who made him righteous 
despite the horrific things he has done and will do. What about you? Can you stand before an all-holy, all-righteous, most-high judge and confidently ask to be vindicated? Is your confidence in your behavior, in your ability to keep the law? As one of our pastoral interns pointed out this week, there is a danger to reading this passage and thinking that you've arrived, that we are really blameless on our own, or maybe that we're holding on to grace so much that we don't see the seriousness of our sin in front of a holy and all-righteous God. See, we can pray this prayer when we are falsely accused and believe that our conduct is innocent in a situation. Or we can pray this prayer asking the Lord to do what he says he will do and declare us innocent because of Christ. But we should expect, I think, in both of these, that the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our hearts, that our sin will be revealed. Not because God hasn't justified us, and, to declare, and declared us innocent, but because we are not yet free of our sin nature. This is part of Peter's charge to confirm your calling and election. Lord, inspect my heart. Hear my thoughts. Reveal where sin has taken hold and I may not see it. Show me where fruit isn't growing. You know what? In fact, cut that branch off. And while God is the judge, and only God is the judge, there is application here for us as the church as well. As we see one another putting our confidence in the wrong things, walking with anyone else but God's steadfast love in front of our eyes, to sometimes do the hard work of pointing out blind spots, the sin that I can't see, but you see in my life. And then walking with one another as we work to root out the sin that is found. All the while reminding one another that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Our second point is in verses 4 to 8, and that is the conduct of the righteous. In these verses, we see David continuing to lay out his case for God to vindicate him. He first states this negatively, or, or here's the things that I have not done. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, we may be tempted to read these verses as saying, avoid evil people. Don't go near them. And that's certainly not what's in view here. First, remembering that this is poetry. Let's look again at the language that's used. I do not sit. I do not consort or go along with. The image of sitting down helps us to see that the idea is that of association or abiding with. One author says there is far more effort required to separate yourself when you're sitting with someone. David isn't saying he avoids evil people, but he avoids allowing evil people to corrupt how he is walking with his focus on God's steadfast love. 
The author uses this poetic device to further contrast his posture of sitting with walking. Look at verses 1 and verses 11. He is walking, and he's contrasting this with, with sitting. When you're reading through the Psalms, look for the contrasts between the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous and the wicked. They're always there. And yet, sometimes we're uncomfortable drawing that line, aren't we? I was thinking about this earlier this week, and I realized that sometimes we can become so focused on our sin and our own shortcomings that it's hard to see this distinction in ourselves. And I was reminded that we should see ourselves as saints that sin and not sinners. Because who you are in Christ is a saint. You are no longer identified by your sin. You're identified by your Savior. And you are different than you were before Christ. Not only have you been justified, but you have also been sanctified. Now, you're not completely sanctified. In other words, being made perfect. But when you start off as a believer, you start out with some progress in sanctification. You don't start at zero. You start off sanctified, becoming more sanctified. If this weren't the case, letting your light shine, the command to let your light shine before a dark world would make no sense if you were just as dark as the world you were in. Look here in verse 4 at the kind of men that are mentioned. Men of falsehood. That indicates that they are pursuing something of vanity, not pursuing the things of God. They are literally pursuing worthless things. Worthless men. These are the things that won't last. Hypocrites. These are the ones that conceal their true thoughts and actions. They are sly and underhanded. And in verse 5, David writes I hate the assembly of the evildoers. One author says that part of walking in wholeheartedness and loving God's assembly means that you hate the assembly of evildoers. You can't love both. So in verses 4 and 5, we saw David saying, I don't do these things. And now in verses 6 to 8, David states positively his case. These are the things that he does do, that he has done. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. As we said earlier, approaching God's house is a central theme to this group of psalms. And the imagery here is so vivid. David says, I wash my hands in innocence. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 24. Flip back over and look at verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. See, this picture of washing hands is rooted in the Mosaic law. We see in Exodus as as the priests prepared to offer a sacrifice at the temple. 
But we also see it in the New Testament. Matthew 27, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing rather than that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And we use that expression today, right? I'm innocent. I washed my hands of this. And here the psalmist approaches God's dwelling place in innocence, and his purpose is to proclaim his thankfulness and to tell others what God has done. This picture reminds me of how we take communion as a church, as we inspect ourselves, as we pray, as we ask, are we taking this in an unworthy manner? Is there, is there sin that's, that's separating us from one another? I was talking through this passage earlier this week with some of the other pastors and, and interns, and someone pointed out the idea that going around the altar is somewhat reminiscent of the people sit circling Jericho. And on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the people, not the priests, the people, who would march around the altar seven times to remember Jericho. To remember and to celebrate God's covenant faithfulness in saving his people. And then David goes on to say, I love the habitation. Literally, where Yahweh dwells. Professor Alec Matyer says, The homeliness of Yahweh taking an earthly address and the intimacy of his actually coming to live among his people must never degenerate into casualness. We can never stop considering what, how impactful that is. And David uses this picture of the tabernacle, something that was designed around the separation of the clean and unclean, of the holy and the unholy, to show us something far more grand to come. God dwelling with his people. And instead of a tent or a temple, we see here shadows of God with us, of Emmanuel. And instead of separation, we see God's people as priests, communing with God himself through Christ. Do you see what's happening here? David isn't just describing washing his hands and going around the altar. He is painting us a picture that points us forward to what's to come. We see God's people gathered together, singing God's praises and telling of his wondrous deeds in the presence of their king. The contrast between loving the place where his glory dwells and hating the assembly of, of, of evil, it couldn't be clearer. And this is the conduct of the righteous. In what assembly do you delight? I think it's easy for us to think of the assembly of the evildoers here as dark, back alley, criminal dealings. When really it's people pursuing vain, worthless, and false things. Something we literally come into contact with and accept every single day. In terms of the church, Pastor Dale Ruff Davis writes, we are so smothered in our culture and in the church with sugary pronouncements about needing to accept everyone that we lose the hostility that we're meant to keep. 
And friends, don't let this hear you, don't let this make you think that we should be deterred from sharing the gospel, from talking with people who love things other than the things of God. We're in loving our neighbors. In fact, it should fuel our desire to do those things even more. But it reminds us to be in this world and not of this world. Or as Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And our last point is in verses 9 to 12. And that's the hope of the righteous. We looked at the confidence of the righteous, the conduct of the righteous, and now the hope of the righteous. In verses 9 and 10, the psalmist's plea is, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. So much of what has been written so far comes to a conclusion here. If for a second we thought David was claiming to be morally perfect, if we detected even an ounce of pride coming from him, these next few verses in Psalm 26 are going to clear up any of those doubts. David has confidently asserted his integrity. His righteousness is because of his focus on what God has done. He has hated the assembly of the wicked. He has loved God's assembly. But now he asks Yahweh, the judge he stands before, not to cast him aside. Perhaps Psalm 5 verses 4 to 6 are in his mind. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The God, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Psalm 1 verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. David is keenly aware of his sin before this holy, just judge. For just in Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Or verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Despite his sin, David puts his hope in the one who is faithful to keep his covenant. David is asking the Lord to work salvation according to the redemption promised. I think we need to take care here that we don't end up comparing sinners. David isn't comparing himself to the sinfulness of others. I think sometimes when the gospel is preached, instead of asking if you are a sinner, the question becomes more of how far you've fallen seems like a small difference. For we ask that question, the next question is whether you are able to reach out to grab hold of Jesus and to pull yourself up. And friends, that's not the gospel. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You weren't injured. You were dead. And you were born that way. Even David writes in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
And that sin offends the all-righteous God. The same God that David is standing before and the same God that we will stand before. David wasn't trusting his own righteousness, but in the fact that he was righteous because of God's loving kindness. David was trusting in the one who foreknew and foreloved him. David was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And friends, what David trusted in by faith, we see in greater color in the New Testament. David knew that the penalty for his sin was to be swept away, yet his prayer was that God would count him righteous because of the Christ to come. He was depending on the judge to render a verdict of innocence because of Christ. Pastor Sam Waldron says that God loves us not at the cost of his justice, but at the price of his son. And it's with that hope the psalmist carries on in in verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Now note in verse 1 that David says, for I have walked in my integrity. And now in verse 11, he says, I will walk in my integrity. Here's what I've been doing till now while I wait based on what God has done. And I'm going to go on in the same hope. The psalmist asks God to redeem him and to be gracious to him, which are only things that God does. And as the people sang and prayed this psalm, as we sing and pray this psalm, think of how reassuring this is as our source of hope. Finally, the psalmist says, My foot stands on level ground, and the assembly I will bless the Lord. This picture of level ground, I think, should draw our attention back to verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering, literally without slipping, without tripping. One author writes about this picture that the psalmist's confidence is in the one who can keep him. Friends, that hope isn't just for the day or for the week, but it's an eternal hope. As we said earlier, this psalm may have been written when David was being falsely accused. Similarly, when we find ourselves being falsely accused, we are quick to plead our innocence. But sometimes under the pressure of that ongoing scrutiny of accusations, we might waver. We might start to question, did I I do that? Was there some misdoing on my part? Is there even partially any truth to that claim. And this applies in far more circumstances than just being dragged off by the police after church. It could look like someone assuming the worst about you because of your faith. Perhaps you are being accused of being unloving or hateful to others because you refuse to celebrate behavior that God condemns. You Christians, you're such hateful people. Or when you take a stand for the unborn, and you're accused of denying somebody their rights. Or when the accuser of the brethren whispers in your ear to remind you of the shame that your sin has brought, 
that your failings will be your end, and that no one, including God, could ever love you. Brothers and sisters, when these accusations come, the doubts, the anxieties, they can cause our assertions of innocence to grow tired. I know one of the ways I've struggled most with this in my Christian life is being assured of my salvation. Ask that question, am I saved? Am I really saved? Countless times, especially when the shame of my sin weighs so heavily. It's this question that often leads us to consider the strength or the validity of our faith. If only our faith were stronger, then, then I could be confident. Or perhaps your assurance is dependent on how blameless you are on your own. How many hours you spend in God's word, how many hours, how many times you've prayed this week, the number of times you've shared the gospel, or even how often you serve in children's ministry. If you're looking at your faith, your conduct, your works, or something that you did, your assurance will never be greater than you. And you can't have assurance because none of those things will save you. Our hope can only rest in the work that Christ has accomplished. That God loved you enough to send his son to die on your behalf. That God is the God who keeps his promises. Only then can you rest in assurance of your salvation no matter what accusations come your way. Only when you can say like David did, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David, the king of God's chosen people, wrote these words hundreds of years before another king would come. David, a real man, a real king, points us forward to a better David, a better king, that is Christ. And Christ is the one who is falsely accused and looks to the Father for vindication. Christ is the one who has trusted in the Lord without wavering. Christ is the one who was tested in the wilderness. Christ is the one who was a friend to sinners but did not participate in the works of evildoers. Christ is the one who desired to be in his Father's house. Christ is the one that took on sin and defeated death by raising on the third day so that we would not be swept away. Christ, who is our great high priest and sits at the right hand of the Father. Friends, it's by Christ's righteousness that you are found righteous, that you are blameless, that you are declared innocent. He and he alone is the source of your confidence and hope. Let's pray.